Just drop the stuff about who's black and who's white. It doesn't matter. There's nowhere where it matters what complexion anybody is. If there's X many, many people that get this kind of income, there you are. You do something about them. You don't need to know what complexion they are. Have you ever gone through change in your personal life or at work and thought to yourself, there must be a better way to do this? Welcome to On Change, the podcast that explores change that works and the people who make it happen. And now from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Pietro Dupisani. Today I speak to Dennis Beckett. He's a journalist and adventurer and he wears many hats, but he's most widely known for presenting Beckett's Trek on SABC from 1994 to 2001. He was also the editor of a political magazine called Frontline. He studied law but defected to the media and started Frontline in 1979. Journalist, TV star, radio presenter, author, activist. Is there anything else I can add to the list? It's always been a bit of a statement of faith that I am technically an advocate. Now, the way that the law works is according to seniority. So I'm, of all the people in the nation, I'm one of the guys living now who was admitted earliest, namely in 1972. In other words, I'm an incredibly senior junior advocate who's never practiced. <laughs> so tell me about yourself and where did you grow up yeah, and what was your family like? My family was beautiful. I was born in Britain. My parents, I was born in the coldest winter of the 20th century in Britain. My mother was a Pretoria girl. She agitated a bit. My dad was an Irish boy and they moved here and they were decent people who lived like they were supposed to live. The way that they said they lived and the way that they did live was one and the same thing. And that, by the way, is to me the sort of bottom line of what decency is about. So you grew up in Johannesburg? Yeah. Yeah, did you go to school here? Yeah, King Edward's Prep and St. Stithian's around the corner from you here as I was one of the earlier guys around there. And then after that, what did you study? Vitz, Vitz. I studied law. I studied a BA LLB. I first of all studied BCom LLB. My dad's friends having said, no, no, that's much better. You know, a young guy doing a BCom and an LLB is much more syllable. And I failed everything that was even vaguely commercial. And so you, then did, I you didn't like it? BA. No. You didn't like it at all? No, so I still don't. I still can't make head or tail of figures, money, nothing. Uh, but, but, Innumerate. But why did you choose law? Uh, A, income, and B, I thought, okay, that's some sort of social thing. You'll make some sort of impact and, you know, help the world. But like we all know, you didn't become a lawyer or no. an advocate. So no, what, what drove you to journalism? Okay, year four and a half of five-year degree. I said to my dad, I'm never going to be a lawyer. He says, look, I've paid to put you through four and a half years of university. Finish this, get your degree, and then do what you want. So I did that, and uh, he lived up to, he said he'd accept whatever I did, and he did. And in, in fact, there was some toing and froing, and then I went wandering around the world a bit, and then I came back here, and I got offered a job at the Rand Daily Mail, a writing job. And I thought, damn, you know, I'm going to take a year out before I do proper law, get down to a real career. And that year sort of hasn't quite stopped yet. It's in sort of November sometime now. <laughs> so you took a very long sabbatical and actually never went back to law. That's exactly right. <laughs> Great stuff. So you thought you were going to take a break and be a journalist for a year or so, but what happened then? Then you decided to stay longer and then... Then that year just, uh, you know, things were kind of interesting and I went on further and I went on further. 
And finally, look, law isn't for me. I don't belong in law. Um, incidentally, a little tangent here. I once nearly joined the Navy. When I later looked back at that, I think I would, that's insane. I'm just not a person for discipline and hierarchy at all. But at one time, I so enjoyed the Navy that I nearly joined. Then Was it the uniform? Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the, Cape, the Cape Town girls, unfortunately, didn't seem to notice. <laughs> but um, then law, to have thought that I would get into all that meticulous pursuing of what is. I'm not really interested in what is. I'm in, interested in what can be. I'm not interested in the detail of how a contract was formed. I'm interested in the personal relationships and the impact upon people, rather. So you started off like as a junior journalist at the Daily yep. Mail. And then eventually, we all know you ended up as the editor for Frontline Magazine. So how did that all yeah, happen? Well, Frontline, okay. So I did a bit of Daily Mail journalism. Then I did a bit of Argus Company, the opposition, the star. I was happy to the manager. The manager then was, these days, everybody's a manager or something. Those days, the manager was the boss. He then became the chairman, which was the like, total overall boss of the company. And he was quite explicit that he expected me in due course to, to be in his position, not exactly his immediate successor somehow, but at some time that was his intention. And I decided that the star in those days wasn't sufficiently bold and clear and didn't state a case that this apartheid society was the wrong place and the Rand Daily Mail was doing this. So I went back to the mail and it was a journalist again, then I had another swap back at the Argus Company in a management role, and then finally the Argus Company combined two roles by making me what was called assistant editor of Weekend World. De facto, I was the editor of that weekly paper, Weekend Paper. Percy Orboiser was editor of both World and Weekend World, and I was his assistant editor, quote, but actually Percy had nothing to do with Weekend World. He did the daily and I did the weekend. It was a magnificent. I really loved that job. It was great. Came to a grinding halt when Jimmy Kruger and John Forster kind of um, threw their toys out of the famous cot. But uh, that was a lovely time. And then everything ended. Then Percy was in jail and my deputy, uh, Agri-Claster, was in jail. I was actually in Umtata on the day that they closed all those papers, October the 19th, 1977. I was in Umtata. Ironically, kind of incongruously, I was at Pukbuerta opening Kaiser Matanzima, the president of the Transkai's new palace, new state house. And when I heard that it, all the, these arrests had taken place and bannings and so forth, I said to Pix guys, listen, you better give me a lift back home in your plane because I, I think I better be there. I don't know why, but I thought I'd better be there. But at this stage, suddenly on that day, I'd now become the enemy. To, as far as they were concerned. The day before, they'd been all pally, nice, like we'd been in happy conversation. Now suddenly they think, well, geez, this guy's toxic, you know, he's, uh, we can't go near. So that fell away. What is the point I was making? The point I was making is after the collapse of all those papers, there was a short period during which there was a funny little maverick black, black, black magazine. It was so black, it was unbelievable. It bragged about being, we are the real black newspaper, newspaper, I should have said. They bragged about that and um, taking a whack at World, which was after all owned by the big status for Lagos company. And this funny little black magazine then asked me if I wanted to be their manager. So I was a kind of umulungu behind the scenes. And that became weird. The end result is I wanted to create something that was not interested in all the race crap that we were living through at that stage. I'm not, I wasn't interested in being the black priest or the white priest. I wanted something that was just for people. That was the beginning of Frontline. And there we are. That created Frontline 1979, lasted for 12 years, more or less. 
for 12 years. So that takes us to 91. 91. Mm. Okay. And I started it in the middle of December 79, which is an interesting indication of extremely bad strategic organization to create a newspaper at a time that everybody's out of town and uh, nobody's noticing, well, didn't work. The newspaper didn't work. Well, the, the, the launch certainly didn't work. The okay. newspaper survived for 12 years. I was proud of numerous things that that paper did, actually. But one thing was that in those whole 12 years, I ran through 40,000 rand of other people's money. Now, that was tuppence compared to what practically everybody else in the kind of so-called alternative industry. I believed that I would make my own living, and I did. I tried to do that. It had its costs and prices, but it also gave me a certain satisfaction. Every now and again, I went broke, and somebody dug me out, which, by the way, twice was Harry Oppenheimer. And what is the most memorable story from that period in your life, from that magazine? <laughs> you want our most memorable. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure there's many. There's so many times there. Okay. Okay. Listen, there's a lot. In 1983, P.W. Butter was at that stage prime minister, the beginning of 83. He was prime minister of the Republic of South Africa. And we had this president who was a chap who wore the top hat, and I forget which one it was at that stage. I think maybe Donia's. But the president was like a symbol, a symbolic president. P.W. then decided on this referendum to bring in the Indian and colored parliaments, make three parliaments, and he would become president. That in the due course happened. There was a huge issue about this. There was a huge issue amongst people who were opposed to, who wanted a change that, that didn't divide people by races, okay? Either you supported the yes vote, in which case you were giving P.W. Bert a sucker and encouraging him to go on keeping the blacks out, if you like, or you supported the no vote, and which in P.W.'s mind, or in the the reality of the state as it was, supporting the no meant you were supporting the Hastak, the Nationale Partei, and the, uh, I think, Conservative Party was already the, the heavy far right who opposed. And this was a huge issue, and I and a few other guys said, the answer to this thing is to create your own place on the ballot form. Create a big double X, right, X in both places, and you've spoiled your paper. And if people know that this, there's a campaign, spoil your paper and you're saying this is not enough for reform, we don't support it because it doesn't go far enough, you could create your own position. And to me, the issues coming around that were quite dramatic. There was a time that uh, P.W. Boeta absolutely, he dumped all over me, not by name. I mean, I almost wish that he had. I would have been so proud. But he dumped all over me sitting in the, he was in the Johannesburg City Hall. I was actually in the audience. And hell, he was dumping heavily, much better. And it became quite a, a sort of a, a theme, but it never finally took off. And that also, by the way, is a story if you want that story. How do you mean if I want that story? Well, uh, <laughs> Okay, about a week before, this spoiled ballot thing became a big issue. Of course, every guy immediately looks at it and says, well, that's stupid, you know, that's for stupid people. Stupid people don't know how to vote. We were saying you create your own place. Some people got it and some people didn't. One person who absolutely didn't get it was Franzel Slabert, who was head of the uh, PFP, the opposition at the time. He was very unamused, I have to say. And um, various people, big shots, 
privately agreed with us, but then couldn't part. A lot of progs, a lot of the top progs also said, we, you know, we're in a trap here and we're doing the wrong thing. We've got to get out. But they couldn't actually publicly break away. They were all scared and so forth. And finally, the biggest fish of the whole lot, aforementioned Harry Oppenheimer, invited my wife Gail and I to supper one night. This was now shortly before the, the election, the referendum. And he had a bunch of his advisors around there, and we had sat through this incredible supper. And then the ladies go out, part of their noses, and um, the men gather in the smoking in the cigar room. And he says, right, explain to us this thing. By the time I'd finished explaining, all of his advisors who were there were on, they were wildly enthusiastic. Harry, you must do this. Harry, you must say this. If Harry had got up the next morning and said, I hereby declare that I think the right thing to do is to spoil your vote. That was going to radically change. I'm not saying it was going to win, damn. It was going to radically change the proportions. And Harry got to the edge. And then as he walked us out, and I remember I had this funny little old broken Audi that made a hell of a noise when you started it. And as he walked us out to the car, he said, you know, I'm sorry. He said, I've been too involved with the progs for too long, and I can't turn on my back on them now at this time. So to me, that was like a little tense period, a fascinating little period, where in principle, that was the right difference. It was the right thing to do. Well, it failed, but it was doing the right thing. I've had a long history of doing the right thing that fails. That's what works. That's frequent. It's going to be a highly exciting campaign. Uh, yeah, it was and exciting. It almost worked. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> almost did something at least. The <laughs> end was you always get half a percent spoiled papers. The end was if you'd got anything more than that, it would have been significant. In the end, you got something like 1% or 1.1 or something. It was more, but it was, you know, you can't argue that statistic. But in some places, and there was some guys who came and spoke to me and others who were involved, who told us about experiences at polling booths in northern Johannesburg, which is our heartland, as it were, northern Johannesburg and southern Cape, southern Cape Town. And they told us of various different experiences of, for instance, typically, when a spoiled vote came up, the yeses, the yes people were sitting at the table and the no people were sitting at the table and then there was the presiding, the presiding officer. The yes people would have one spoiled vote and the no people would have the next spoiled vote. So the spoiled vote kind of disappeared improperly and wrongly, really, but sort of to be expected. So you ran this newspaper until 91 and then sort of the beginning of the 90s, mid-90s, we see your face on television. So how did you transition from being an editor to a TV program host? I'd, in the meantime, started doing stuff on 702. For a while, I was doing a Monday night on 702, and then sometimes I was doing the whole the 9 o'clock thing, the 9 o'clock, what, what is it called? Talk at 9, simple. And um, so it was sometimes five days a week and sometimes one day a week. It was much more, a longer period of one day a week. And I enjoyed that. So I had a lovely time interviewing Mandela. That was really, a, there was, I had some, several great experiences with Mandela. But that was good, that 702. And there was a program on what was then called NNTV, which is the predecessor of, of SABC3, called Face the Facts, which was, the whole program was invented around a sort of simple device, that there was a fax on screen and you sent in your question and facts, and the the either presenter was then meant to peel off your your facts and put it to the minister for of finance younger, or the director. For our younger listeners, what are the facts? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. The facts was only invented in 1987, hey, and already we are worrying. 
<laughs> anyway, that, that worked. It was an economics program, and it was, okay, it was meant to be economics for the common man. Now, I told you a moment ago, my understanding of economics is somewhere down below the floorboards. I am innumerate. I don't understand finance, money, nothing. And um, so this was really in the sense that it was meant to be for the common man and or woman, man embraces female, I don't know. Um, it was really right. I mean, I was asking dumb, ignorant questions. And I wasn't scared of asking dumb, ignorant questions. And often that was what the viewer wanted to hear. He didn't want to hear the high-class debate. And uh, so that worked for – it was nice. Then they took that off air suddenly, somewhat prematurely, somewhat peremptorily, I should say. There was a new chief executive who said, no, this is elitist. You know, it's like it assumes that people have faxes. Actually, that was just the gimmick, to tell the truth. Then people could phone in and send their questions by any which way. There were people taking uh, questions there. But they cancelled it on the grounds of being elitist. And then um, I said to the guy, general manager of SABC3, I said, oh, this is a bit abrupt. It was on a Tuesday night. One day, Tuesday, I get home sort of mid-afternoon and I've been somewhere else. I get home to where I work. And there's a message saying, well, you know, you can don't need to bother coming in tonight. We've canceled the program. So I sent him a bit of a snotty note saying this is a kind of a bit of a shirty way of canceling a program. So he says, yeah, you know, you're right. And he says, what is more? We need something to fill the hour on Tuesday evening. Have you got any ideas? So that was Beckett's trick. So what was Beckett's trick about? Oh, it was about anything. My producer, Keith Shaw, said it's about scratching where it does not itch. And that was sort of maybe it. It was about going places and saying, what happens here? Going into maybe a place, maybe a theme, maybe an issue, and saying, what happens here? And listening to the answers, and then listening to the other guys' answers. And so it was a little bit irreverent, and it was kind of everything. The trek made people think travel program, travel program. People who watched it knew it wasn't really a travel program. We did travel. Wow, we had lots of lovely travel. India, Nigeria, America, Australia. We'd been you know, lots of places. Never mind all quarters of Southern Africa. But it was a question, it was inquiring into issues, things, thoughts, rather than into geography. So you've seen a lot of South Africa. You've driven all over the place. Man, yeah, but I don't. I mean, there's people who've seen a lot more. I mean, it's not, and people who think I'm some sort of major world travel. I've just run off a, little, a list of things. Yes, but that's about it. I've, uh, yeah, I'm not. A, I don't claim to be a major traveller. No. Cool. So you said you did you actually did some programs for 702 and SAFM mm. and all sorts of radio programs. So mm. if you think about all of that, do you think? That will continue in the future. What do you think is going to happen to radio? Look, <clears throat> there will always be an audience. There'll always be an audience for information that in some sense has been processed. In some sense, you can rely on somebody has like approved this thing. There'll always be a way in which you'll shy away. You might well consume plenty of, but you will also shy away from elements of the social media where anybody just says anything. I mean, I personally find I can't read comment lines here because nine out of ten pieces in a comment line might be reasonable, but the tenth, excuse the metaphor that I use, but it's a deliberate metaphor. It's like you're swimming in a river and every tenth stroke of your arm you brush against a passing turd. And that just revolted me, you know, and uh, I can't read comment lines, they revolt me. I stopped doing a, a comment column that I had because 
the comments were revolting. They weren't necessarily comments dismissive of me, which many of them were, but that doesn't particularly worry me. But it was a bunch of lowlifes using the cover of anonymity to fight really hateful race wars. And that's just... Ugh. So my point is, there will always be some people who want media that in some sense they can rely on delivering something sober, sane, entertaining, something that has been approved by, by somebody for, in terms of class. By who would you like this podcast no, to be approved? No, no, by a boss or someone. I mean, something that anything that isn't just you ranting, anything that has passed some editor who says, yes, this is okay, I can use my valuable space and or time for this thing rather than just putting it on because it's a rant. So would you ever consider doing your own podcast? You know, I'm sort of, I'm a bit kind of pre-technological. And uh, I mean, yeah, you have in this Lani studio and I would sit here all intimidated by all the machinery and equipment and stuff. Maybe, maybe in some later life that will. I think you could generate some good quality content that doesn't need to be edited by anybody else. Um, I would hope. I kind of do that now, actually. I do a column now, which nobody edits. I mean, I shouldn't say nobody edits. That's a bit insulting to the sub-editors. But if anybody changes it, put it this way, I would want to know why. Mm. So you have written a lot of columns for various newspapers. We, you know, I think the latest one is now Stip Talk for yeah. uh, the Star. And your your stories have sort of changed over the years since you started in, what was it, 1980? My first column was for Bielt, would you believe, in 1983. I was a token liberalist. Okay. They branded it as that. I was meant to be the token liberalist. And so that's, yeah, so you started in 83 and you're still writing newspaper columns. Mm. So how have your stories changed over the years? Well, one thing is I get a lot less frightened of deadline. I mean, this is like long overdue. The first 14 or something series of columns, I was constantly frightened of deadline. Lots of people, dead, columnists, I know lots of people, to whom deadline time is like terrifying. Uh, I know guys, I know one particular chap, well known name, who I, he wouldn't even mind, but in just in decency and ethics, I can't really broach, say who he is. But he tells me about how his deadline is at six o'clock on a Wednesday morning, I think it is. And his entire Tuesday is ruined. And his Tuesday night, he can't sleep and he can't, and he, he's cursing the world and himself and everybody. And then at like one minute before six, he finally puts his, one second before six, sometimes a second after, he finally manages to put the last full stop and he sends it through and then he spends Wednesday recovering. And that's quite often, and it has been an equivalent of my previous column experience. I've now done enough that I don't actually get terrified of deadline. That's one thing. I'll say one other thing. Previously, I used to always feel I had to put the world to rights. These days, I quite often want to tell a tale. And I enjoy telling tales, seeing tales of the real South Africa, which as far as I'm concerned is a little bit undercovered. You see so much debate about the I mean, you read a newspaper, and it could be the ANC Times. The newspapers, media generally, it's all about who in government said this to, who in government said that to, who in opposition, da, da, da. real world is actually a much nicer world. I think so, too. I actually don't read newspapers at all. I completely, because it's, it's mostly bad news, and I don't want to spoil my day, so I don't read a lot of newspapers, and I actually rely on my boyfriend to tell me if anything important is going to happen. Um, he'll tell me, you know, if there's something important coming up, he'll, because he, he, he reads the newspapers, so he'll tell me. So I don't read any newspapers at all. And my very best friend is an editor for an online newspaper. 
Okay, so he'll tell me if there's anything I really need to know because I don't want to be completely bugged down by all of the bad news in the papers. But I'm really interested in the storytelling bits because I, I believe that storytelling is the way in which we change stuff. I'm really interested in your response. I don't particularly read newspapers for the news. In fact, news is newspapers' enemy. Newspapers were about news in uh, you know 1805, and they had to tell the Battle of Trafalgar, etc. And it took uh, two, ten days getting there, and then they told the world. Now everybody knows the news anyway before the newspaper publishes. Newspapers aren't about news. Newspapers are about the the set of views, values, expressions being uh, presented around you and about the background to what's happening. International news, actual news is really small in relation to, to me. I mean, you know the news and bam, it hits you. But the really interesting bits are why, what was behind this, what was going on. That stuff is where I'm saying there will be some people, not you, You've declared, but there will be some people who want to read, okay, what was the background to what happened in Syria yesterday? What's the background to what's going on in Nigeria today? And that's yeah. somebody, you want somebody who knows, having edited somebody who also knows. Yeah, I mean, that type of stuff, if you, if you had to go to any online newspaper, which is free, half of it's adverts or it's clickbait or it's, it takes you to mm. all these weird, funny stories that you don't want to read anyway – or it's the bad news. If you want the good content that you're talking about, then you have to pay for it. Then you have to subscribe and you have to, to get the backstory if you want the online news. Because not many, you don't get that many newspapers anymore if you think about it. Um, the only real newspapers I read are the ones that I get on Sunday mornings with my cup of coffee in bed. Ah, and, and but now you just told me you never read the newspaper. You yeah, make an exception of Sundays. I do because it's like a special... Tradition, and then you read like the columns and stuff, and the and the analyses and things. Sometimes. You give a bit of a wrinkle of your nose, not really, not so much. Not so much. I read the front page, just to see what's going on, and then if anything else um, interests me, I'll read that as well. Okay, I mean, actually, it, actually, I do read the comment sections as well. I'll have a little mini argument <laughs> with you. The front page, the front page main story is. Lots of people in my generation, people were almost brought up to think, well, that is the most important thing that is happening. Mm -hmm. That is one guy, or at best a very few guys, idea of something that they think can plausibly pass as breaking news. And it's very frequently not the biggest or best thing okay, around. To be perfectly honest, actually what I do read is the business section. Ah, there we are. Yeah, that's ah. what interests me really. Well, that's rather interesting. I could cross-examine you on that. Why does that interest you? Are you a potential business person? Are you an investor? Are you a No, I work for a big corporate. Person? So for uh, me, it's it's interesting to see what's happening in that world and to be up to date. Uh, yeah. Nice. In any case, so what do you think is going to happen to newspapers? My basic answer is that there will always be some place for actual prof professionally treated conveyance of information. Sometimes that'll be in print. Some, print has its fans, eh? By the way, in some countries, yeah, print is suffering. It's print worldwide is not necessarily suffering. The um, major big British and American newspapers are not suffering. Mm. The huge magazines, The Economist and Time, well, Newsweek frecked, but then again, it was fighting time. It was going to freck sooner or later. The Economist, Time, and their equivalents around uh, survive. Writing stuff that people want to read is 
will never there will never cease to be some yeah, interest can, in that. I can completely agree with you on that one. Good content is always something. I mean, where I get my news from and where I listen to stuff, I listen to podcasts, I listen to I don't listen to the radio because I don't like to listen to DJs making inane chatter. So for me, I'd rather listen to some good content, and there's so much good content out there. So if I'm going to be reading a newspaper story or if I'm going to be listening to something, it must make me cleverer, not stupider. <laughs> That's a lovely definition. <laughs> well, there you are. You've, all, you've answered your own question. You yes. will want something that you can rely on to do that. Yes. You'll also sometimes swallow people saying, oh, I had rice krispies for breakfast and the cat caught a mouse and so forth. You'll, I mean, that happens, but it is finally sought after. My perception, incidentally, is I think a lot of people who used to be absolutely wrapped by Facebook couldn't get away. As far as I can see, there seems to have been some revolution there. There's lots of people who've parted. Mm. Maybe there's a new generation coming and it might just be an age factor. Mm. But, mm. Yeah, I'm not at all interested in celebrities or sport or bad news, pretty much. No, I like that. So. I'm also not interested in bad news. I very much like that. I'm interested in the world as it could be rather than hearing the details of all the wrongs and disasters. Mm. That's right. So you've also written a lot of books. Because when I Googled you, there was a whole mm. list of books that you've written. So how do you decide what you're going to write about? So how does an idea that forms in your head become a book? Look, two of those books, the two that sold the best, were about my TV series. I never, by the way, advertise these things. I really feel quite stupid now that I didn't, but I never did on TV. So they were never actually brought or introduced to the public as such, but what the hell, they sold somewhat anyway. And it was an obvious thing to write. It was quite delightful writing the story of the bits that you couldn't put on the screen. I loved that. It was easy and fun. One was a novel. I wrote that novel because I've had a mission for a long time. I'll tell you about it in a minute. And I'd been presenting this mission in one way or another, several of those books, and it never got anywhere. Never, nobody ever paid any attention, whatever. And then I thought of a lady named, I was going to say Louisa May Alcott, but it's not. It's the wrong one. It's also three names. My, my head leaks these days. So you get into your 70s and your head leaks. But... Um, the lady who wrote Harriet Beecher Stowe, thank you, Harriet Beecher Stowe, wrote uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. She, Harriet, had been valiantly part of the anti-slavery campaign in Connecticut, distributing pamphlets on street corners, and people would politely pay, take the pamphlet and politely drop it in the bin at the end. And she got a bit frustrated, and she thought she's going to write a novel to illustrate it. And she wrote a novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin pretty immediately became the best-selling book in history to that stage. Well, at least the best-selling book in America, which probably meant already the best. Maybe we could argue that. But it became a huge seller. And Lincoln later said, this is the little lady who started the big war. And in a way, that is. That wasn't her intention. She didn't intend to go through that absolutely awful cataclysm in order to come out with the result that she got. But she certainly got the result. Well, the result happened. Now, I wrote a novel for the same reason, and it <laughs> conspicuously failed, of course, to have the same effect. But that was the original reason why I wrote a novel. Once I got into the novel, I sort of enjoyed it. It was fun. It was nice. But I had, I mean, by consensus, and I would agree, I'd somewhat cluttered it by making it carry two. It was meant to be a fun tale at the same time as it was meant to be presenting a kind of country, and it didn't work. And the others? Others were one I got paid for, several I got paid for, actually. 
uh, which was quite nice. My deal always was, you aren't buying my pen, you're buying my time. I'm going to write what I believe is the case about your thing. And everybody immediately says, yes, of course, that's what we want. Sometimes in the end, the company says, that isn't what we want. They paid me in every time. There was no place that I wasn't paid, but there's several times that they didn't publish the book. And there were some times that they did publish the book. Why did you choose to stay in South Africa? Ah, it's my country. I love it. It's nice and lovely. Your day-to-day relationships around South Africa are actually absolutely stunningly excellent. Your normal relationship with a normal guy that you meet, you have a, anywhere, you, any, any place that you meet anybody, your normal relationship is an absolutely first-class excellent relationship. I love that. I love that experience. Day after day, I have 50 or more great interchanges. If I walk down to the shop, which is 800 meters, our little local shop, almost everybody will be a domestic employee or some humble character. And you'll have your day made five times in 800 meters, 50 times a day. It's great. Yeah, I get asked that story quite a lot, or that, that question quite a lot, because I travel quite a lot for work. And people always go, well, why don't you go work elsewhere? And I'm just going, well, my people aren't there. Wherever, yeah. wherever they want to send me, Singapore, mm. London, or Australia. No, why, I, I share that. I yes. love the idea that you can. I also like the idea that when I was a kid, Afrikaners were over there. They're over there. You didn't know the Afrikaners. They were somewhere else. They had their funny hats and race suits, and they made their laws. And they, the only guy you ever met was a sergeant coming to arrest the maid's husband for pass offense. And uh, it was that. The Afrikaners were another breed. And now I grow into the sense of this is a fulfillment to me, the relationship. And also being able to slip into a bit of Afrikaans from time to time. Yeah, I actually saw your, your, your Wikipedia entry because I was doing research on you. Your Wikipedia entry is in Afrikaans. Somebody uh, wrote something in Afrikaans about you on Wikipedia. Well, I can believe that. I couldn't find, I looked at when you told me that, you warned me. I looked for that. I couldn't find that. I've never put anything on Wikipedia. No, you're not, you're not supposed to write your own entry. Other people write about you. Well. But whoever I, decided to write about you wrote it in Afrikaans. Well, I must find it. I must find it. I'll look harder. You just basically put your name into Google and Google it. I did that, but then I got, okay. <laughs> 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 Maybe I did it wrong. I do it wrong all the time. All that, all that it's one N and two T's. <laughs> yes, thank you. I think I learned. <laughs> I have to learn that. My wife is going G-A-E-L. The number of times that we get an invitation or anything that is addressed, correct Dennis and correct Gail, is ongelooflijk min. I can believe that. Yeah. So what are you currently excited about? Yeah, okay, my big mission, I was going to tell you. I have for years been maintaining you can make politics work in the way that we've made like technology work. It's gone, it's transcended the limits that there used to be. It's gone into a new realm. We can make politics work. We can make politics work quite easily. And in due course, sooner or later, whether at my hand or not, but in sooner or later, that's the route towards doing that is going to come out. And briefly put, because I can really bog you down on this, Briefly put, the route to do that is you want to utilize the inbuilt stability of ordinary people. Ordinary people's role in politics is ain't like nooks, nothing. The only thing that ordinary people can do is they can say, oh, well, this party is better than that party. I'll go for this party or that party. Most people have no interest in parties. Most people. Most people in our country and most others 
don't vote. In countries where you have guns to your head and you're going to be in trouble, that's different. But in most reasonably free countries, most people don't vote. They don't even vote in presidential elections, never mind midterms and or municipals that we have. They aren't interested enough to vote. They avoid it fairly drastically because there's dangers and risks and it can be dangerous. It's not dangerous on this side of town. It's dangerous in the places where the squatter shacks are dire and the gang lords are heavy. And most people don't want to vote. Give people a sensible structure in which to achieve things that they want out of politics rather than this blind, doff thing of simply voting for what turns out to be the party you were born into. More than of most of people who vote, about three quarters vote for the party they were born to. So to create a politics that enables the ordinary, humble, apolitical citizen to exercise an, a sensible role. You design a sensible role for them, which does not mean forcing people to the polls. Nothing like that. It means allow people to see things that they can vote for, to see how to vote for those things, and to get things that they do vote for. Here you are, simple. I mean, I could get excited about voting for stuff. Would be, I would like to vote what my tax money is used for. Well, that's a so, very legitimate one. Yes, yeah, so I'd very much like to go, I'd like 10% go to education, 5% to infrastructure, you know, and being, be able to like, list, this is where I want to see my tax money going to, and I want an account back on how you've spent my money. And I think a lot of South Africans feel that way at the moment. And that way, and not only at the moment, but for a long time. And let me take, uh, give you one further word. Let me put to you a proposition. The history of humankind has been a history of movement away from the power of the strong towards the power of you and me. Now, we tend now, we now have a society, a world, where most places, 186 countries, which is 95% of the total, people have a vote. And so we now tend to think, okay, we've got there, we've finished, you know, we've arrived. Well, I'm saying, no, we haven't arrived. We're only at the beginning point. We've actually got to the starting points of the vote mattering and being used. Now, what you've just said is one of the many ways in which votes are clearly, surely going to be used in the future. That's an obvious standout thing of a way that the future development is going to take place. And my basic argument, find the role for the person who's not interested in politics, is another standout way that that development will happen. So have you read the book The Circle by Dave Eggers? Well, so, I hate so, to say it, I not only haven't read it, I've never heard of it or him. Okay, you better so, tell me about it. So I'm going to tell you what it's about. So it's all about the power of a big software company which I can't remember what it was called. They create a platform called The Circle. And it's I think it's actually modeled on Google, that sort of thing. But what it, how it actually, they actually infiltrate completely into everybody's lives. So eventually they use that platform to vote as well. And you can vote on a short-term basis. So you can sort of go, according to public opinion, it touches on the more eerie side of it because it's like it's the evil side of social media voting people out of stuff. So it becomes a way in which social media decides what's going to happen to politicians, to sports stars, to anything. I mean, any public opinion can make or break somebody and it can be within days or hours because everybody on the, on the platform is voting for specific stuff. So. Taking that into consideration and your wish for stuff to at least be true or edited and not fake news, how do we get that sort of 
public opinion out there without it being this outraged society that we're currently living in? There's several strands in what you said there. Just let me take up one. Almost everything that we talk of as being public opinion or what people want or people's rules and so forth is not is not that thing. It's something different. Every time, for instance, here's a little classic. You see on your screen that there's, in some dorpy somewhere, a hundred guys are burning um, shacks and they're stewing rubbish and they've got tires in paraffin and they're lighting it and they're waging chaos. They've got some service delivery problem. People think, oh my God, that's the people. Look at the people. Look how the people are behaving. That's not the frigging people. The people are the guys who are avoiding their press gang the press gang of these hundred, and they're avoiding the TV cameras and they're ducking out to their behind the scenes trying to make their way through their reasonable, ordinary day. That's the people. The people, if you're going to talk about real representativity, the people finally are humble, ordinary, reasonable people looking for a reasonable way to get through, make their way through this earthly coil. And it's hardly ever as, okay, um, when you see marches, you'll see a huge march somewhere and you'll think, oh, you know, this is intimidating. And particularly you'll see a march that's in favor of some side that you're a little bit scared of. You think, oh my God, the people, you know, keep the people boxed in, they're dangerous. That's not the people. The people are the people who aren't in the march. They were bragging like hell about those Egyptian uh, rallies that mustered up to a, a million people in Egypt at the time of that Arab Spring. You know how Egypt works is that some 80 million people are within 20 kilometers of Cairo. Now I'm exaggerating. Some 80 million people are within splitting distance of Cairo. Look at the people who didn't go. That's always a much more important thing than looking at the people who were involved. Most people aren't involved. You give them a role as just require, like, if you like, ratification. You're going to end up with so much stability, so much, like, normalness, and so much good behavior. Mm, you'll wish you'd done it before. Mm, definitely. My podcast is called On Change, and it's all about change. And I think, I think I did ask quite a lot of questions about change and what you've seen changing and why you're staying and not going and that sort of stuff. All right, let me say two things on change. One thing is you want to change towards a point where you stop changing. The idea that a lot of people feel now that oh, everything's changing all the time, there's no stability, there's nothing sound, nothing solid, no rock. I'm really very sympathetic with people who get alarmed by that. Let me come back to my little theme. When you do change to sound politics, you're going to have an awful lot of stability coming out of that. You'll have further changes, but they won't be frightening to you. So I'm sympathetic with people who get agitated about change and endlessly happening, and as soon as they've adjusted to something new, they've just, they've got to adjust to another new thing and so on. But I am saying, because I know we are going through that, but we're coming to the end of that period. I have a really optimism about where we're going to at the moment. You do? I do, That's yes. Good. I don't, I'm not planning on going anywhere. What's your, the grounds of your optimism, basically? I think that South Africans always find the positive in things. And no matter what happens, we still keep going. So there's blackouts and we have load shedding and everything. And yet people, they install gas, they have generators, they light candles, they find new ways of entertaining themselves at night and it passes. And then they're all happy again and they complain a little bit and then they just find a way to 
to get through all of it. And they remain mostly optimistic. In my circle of friends, I think there might be a lot of negative people out there oh, that there I are, there are don't necessarily. I don't listen. I don't read the comment lines. No, because that's where because that's where the that. that's where the negative people but are. There are people who get dedicated to be negative, who won't have their worldview disturbed. Now they're saying, "No, everything is going to hell in a handbasket," and they won't allow you to interrupt that. But hey, I, basically, I agree with you totally about mm. the people. We mm. make it work. We make it happen. Definitely, and my my people are here. My family is here. My friends are here. I, I don't. I don't know that many Australians. And and shame. Look at New Zealand. Hell's teeth. I mean, what a tragic damn thing. And it's. Think of all the South Africans who got there looking for peace and calm and quiet. They must feel doubly shaken up. I think it's a once-off thing, hey. I suppose so. Like that Norwegian a few years ago. Yeah. But still, this, the thing that like that that can happen at all is just there. Mm. Think of that. There's fifty families with. We had a natural death in our family not a long time ago, a young death. And the extent to which it's, oh, it blows you is just stunning. And now you know, think of 50 families with that whole sense of the personal blowing, mm-hmm. apart from so many feeling uh, innocence destroyed, you know, the sense of New Zealand's purity. So we've been talking about doing a, a podcast for a while, okay? Um, so is there, is there anything that when we started talking about it, you really wanted to talk about. So when you were preparing for this or thinking about this podcast, any sort of message you thought that, I really want to leave people with that message. All right, if you'd like a particular message, I'm going to say this. Never mind establishing the Sound Political Foundation. There's one really simple way that any one of us in ourselves can make a better world around us, which is drop race. Just forget the stuff. Everybody gets so fanatical about whether you black, white, Indian, or colored. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Some while ago, I was at a thing of the Institute of Race Relations. They had their whole long story, their presentation. This is the, so many blacks, there's so many Indians, that, so many colors. I said, listen, it's just wrong now to be going on and on about race relations at all. In fact, you should change your name. But you should certainly just drop the stuff about who's black and who's white. It doesn't matter. There's nowhere where it matters what complexion anybody is. If there's X many, many people that get this kind of income, there you are. You do something about them. You don't need to know what complexion they are. And this applies everywhere. There's never any reason you need to worry about anybody's race. So why do we all make it the biggest thing in our agenda? Drop it. Just drop it. The government doesn't know what non-racial means. Literally, literally. The government literally does not know what non-racial means. Non-racial means that you aren't interested in race. The government is fanatically interested in race. Did you, by the way, know that we have a, we, I think we're the only country in the world that has, this is my column a few days ago, that permits races in this constitution. We do. Section 9-2. Go and look it up. And it's just really weird. Not only do we permit that, but we also, it's a worship. We worship at the totem of race. And it's ordinary people everywhere talking about everybody by the... I'm not saying ignore, just be normal. You don't ignore the fact, I know perfectly well you're a woman. I know perfectly well that you're young. I know, you know, that I'm allowed to recognize these differences. You're allowed to recognize differences about race too. You just don't make them your religion. They they don't matter. Yeah, for me, just get on with your life. Yeah, some people are fat, some people are thin, some people are black, some people are white. There you are. Yes, definitely. I was going to ask you, so what are you currently working on? Well, okay, let me give you one little passing word. So many people get so 
miserable and say, oh, where's it all going? Where's it all going? And there's so much immigration, as you know. In fact, the quantity of immigration is utterly horrendous. Let me tell you a little funny story. My nephew, my niece's husband, uh, works in Toronto. They've just been here, the whole family. He's Bailey, so he's not quite relevant for this rest of this discussion. His boss is Mr. Van Aykirk. Mr. Van Aykirk. Van Aykirk, not you look, no? Ex-South African. Van Aykirk, or Van Aykirk's boss is Verster. Mr. Verster, Verster, not you look. His boss is Bass. Buys. Three goeie South African boerah running Toronto's transport system. Look at all the talent, just a little representation. A, it's funny what happens to their names. B, look at the quantity of talent and productive capacity that we've departed from. When we get our act together to make our country unfrightening, we're going to do so much more, go so many more places. So my point is, this last point, when people get depressed, I want people to think of the fact if they had a choice between a country with terrible politics and lovely people and a country with terrible people and better politics, which one are they going to take? You want the politics, go to the one where the politics is wrong because it's a whole lot easier to fix. And that's what we have here. An excellent human relationship between people with a lot of politics to fix. Definitely. Okay. Thank you very Welcome. much. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Unchange. Please rate us so others can find the show as well. If you're interested in some of the books that I spoke to Dennis about, you'll find those in the show notes. And I hope that you'll also remember to check out some of our previous episodes. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.